Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews 10. We are steadily moving along through this book, but we're going to crash right into Hebrews 11, which is the hall of faith. And we'll see what I do with that. It's a lot of Bible characters from the Old Testament. And I try to study with uh, the idea of some rhythm to get us going and get us through. But you don't want to miss anything, right? So it's important to go at the right pace as the Lord leads. And so we're in Hebrews 10 and I'm going to be opening up uh, verses one through 10, which is a larger chunk of scripture, but it's under the theme that I think is practical for most people, which is following the will of God. If you've been in the faith for any period of time, you've asked yourself the question or you've been asked, How do I know what the will of God is for my life? How do I know how to follow the will of God? Or how do I know if I'm following the will of God? What does that look like? People want answers. Is what I'm going through right now because I'm outside of the will of God? Am I under the chastening hand of God in a way that Perhaps I've strayed from his perfect plan. Is that possible? How do I know what to do in this transient place that I live? Am I supposed to just stay? Am I supposed to leave? Am I supposed to switch jobs or climb or be satisfied or what have you? Am I supposed to be married? Am I supposed to have children? Lord, what is your will? Especially when tragedy strikes, we come to ask that question, how do you find God's will? Well, a mystic would read all kinds of things into his dream he had last night, whether it was bad heartburn from bad pizza or burritos, I don't know. But, you know, people read into things all the time and try to discern it and say, I think the Lord is leading me this way or that way. Maybe they read too much into a conversation they have and interpret it. Perhaps you've heard of the young person who slipped on the banana peel, fell on a map right on the area of the map that was India and said, for sure, I'm called to be a missionary to India. Or maybe you've heard of the fatalist who doesn't feel anything in terms of spiritual dynamics or God's providence. And he falls down the steps, breaks his arm and says, well, Lord, I'm glad that's over. God's word describes God's will in a clearer way than how I've been describing. God's will can be broken down really into two categories. God's decreed will or decretive will, or the other is God's revealed will. Both are kind of under the same umbrella of God's will. God's decreed will is what he has purposed from beginning to the end. It's God's will by force of decree. It's God's plan from the beginning. It's why Jesus calls himself the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's transcendent, God is. And so he sees everything and has planned everything. Otherwise, God would not be God. He's God. He's the creator. He's the sovereign. He's the one who is outside of time And outside of space, he's bigger than we can imagine. He's infinite and he is eternal, uncreated God. That's why Joseph in Genesis 50 could look at his brothers who had done so much wrong to him 
and say what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God had a plan all along. Job 42, 2. You remember the life of Job. This is at the end of what he's written. He said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. I will accomplish all my purpose. My counsel shall stand. The end of verse 10. Verse 11 goes on. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Jeremiah 29, 11, These are familiar verses. I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare, not for evil to give you a future and a hope. God is always in charge of his plan. Not a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows without his knowledge, Matthew 10, 29, Romans 8, 28, God is working all things together for the good. For those that are called according to his purpose, Ephesians 1, 11, According to his purpose, he's working all things after the counsel of his will. This is the decreed will of God. This is what it means to have a high view of God who is above and beyond all the dynamics that are going on. It's not to say that he's distant and not dynamically involved in what's happening. It's just that he knows the end from the beginning. He's God. There's no higher creator than God. There is no creator but God. But does that mean that we can't know anything about his decreed will? Well, no. God's word teaches us about God's sovereign will. And as a believer, you know more about what's going on in this world than any unbeliever does. You know why we're here. You know why God made the universe. You know the effects of sin in our world and where that came from. And you know the answer for sin. You know where things are going. God's will comes from knowing scripture and not academically. God's decreed will is an intimate thing that we can know and trust in that God is in control of everything. And as we look back in history, we say, God, that was your plan all along. So even God's decreed will should affect us and give us confidence in knowing God's will. But then there's also the idea of knowing God's revealed will. God has given us the mind of Christ. He's given us the word of God. The, Paul's prayer was that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of his will. And we can know the scripture by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit convictionally. So as you read the word of God, God can clarify how you are supposed to live. And that clarification is living by the will of God. The whole life and ministry of Jesus was a life of submission to the Father's will. And it was a dynamic, sensitive, humble submission to the Father as he was led by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to point out later on how he, how many times he referenced scripture as part of how he was following the will of his Father. That's the revealed will of God. This is what we get. The Bible is not a mere instruction manual. And it's for sure not magic ball where you just kind of play kind of this game where you sort of try to find the will of God just by randomly looking through it. The will of God is revealed to us in a way that helps us. 
Actually, the word will is used over and over again explicitly in Scripture. And I got this from a, uh, a book called Found God's Will by John MacArthur. And it's a, it's a great little booklet to read. It speaks of verses that actually use the word will in it. First Timothy 2.4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's, it's God's will for us to be saved. It's God's will for us to be sanctified. First Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. To be spirit-filled, not drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. This is the will of the Lord, Ephesians 5.17. Not only are we to be saved, sanctified, and spirit-filled, but we're to submit. First Peter 2 talks about being subject to every one of the Lord's institutions, for this is the will of God. We're also, as we know, called to suffer. First Peter 4.19, let, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then we're also called to say thanks always in all circumstances as we grow, we are to thank the Lord for what he gives to us. First Thessalonians 5.18, giving thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God. So we can discern the will of God from the word of God. We know he's sovereign over all things. He's controlling things. But he also is dynamically involved in our lives as we, by the Holy Spirit's work, understand the word of God and submit to what the word of God tells us to do and walk in his will. The Bible says in Psalm 119, the unfolding of his word gives us light. Thy word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This is that illumined dynamic where you read the word of God and all of a sudden the Bible is making sense of your life and your life's decisions as it's unfolding in front of you. This is following the will of God. You say, but it doesn't explicitly tell me whether I'm supposed to get married or not, whether I'm supposed to have more kids or not, or have a kid or not, or take a job or not, or no. No, but it builds you into a a spirit-filled posture where you can discern rightly what to do. It puts you in the right frame of mind and the right spiritual disposition. And then you get in the car and guess what you do? You drive and you come to a fork in the road. And as the great theologian Yogi Berra, I think said, you take it when you come to a fork in the road, right? You just got to do something. And guess what? God, if you do the wrong thing, he'll redirect you if you're in the spirit. This is Paul where he saw a vision. It was go to Macedonia, right? I mean, it's just block and, and shift as you are trusting the Holy Spirit's work through the word of God as he's bringing things to mind and bringing life circumstances in front of you and you're making decisions following the will of the Lord. This is something not, that you don't just know, but it's also something that you do. But the will of God is not something you just do without doing it sensitively and humbly. And no one followed the will of the Lord better as our model and as our example than the Lord Jesus Christ did. Romans 12 calls all believers to follow the will of God like Jesus did, to not be conformed to this world, verse two, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds to be that living sacrifice that by testing you may discern what is the will of God? It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is basic Christianity following God's will. Well, why, do I why am I making such a big deal about the will of God if we're in Hebrews chapter 10? 
Well, it's because in verses 5 through 10, the second half of our section, basically, the word will is used. That same Greek word is used five different times. And it's used, translated perhaps in your Bible as desire and also will, but it's five different uses of that same word. And so we're going to learn about how Christ's heart attitude was to follow the Father's will in his coming. It's interwoven in these verses. You really have a striking contrast between verses 1 through 6. This is outline point number 1. 1 through 6, which basically says this is what it looks like when you're not following God's will. And then verses 7 to 10, which is what it looks like when you are following God's will. So this is knowing when you are and when you are not following God's will. Point 1, when you are not following God's will. Let me begin, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 6, but I want to say up front a qualifier. I believe that it was the revealed will of God for the sacrificial system to be put in place. That was part of the revealed will of God. God gave us his law, and verse 8 actually says that the sacrifices were offered according to the law. And so there was nothing inherently wrong with that system. It was the abuse of that system that became wrong where people were not following the will of God. All right, listen as I read. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. There's that will word. But a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Let's stop there. So again, God not delighting in these sacrifices that were offered. This does not mean that the old covenant era was contrary to God's will. It was set up according to God's will. But as we've learned through this study so far, the sacrificial system was provisional, not permanent. It was not meant to last. It was not meant to solve sin ultimately. It was not meant to be able to make someone perfect on the outside and on the inside. Ritualism, religion, doing things in the name of God does not save you. Are we clear on that? That does not save you. In fact, being a religious do-gooder actually will harm you. If your heart's not transformed from the inside out where you are following Christ and that's why you do what you do, it will actually have the reverse effect of instead of softening you and keeping you right with God, it will harden you to the things of God. This is what's contrary to the will of God. This is what God does not desire. This is what God does not will. Vain repetition, religious do-gooding, externalism, 
formalism, going through the motions. Does any of this sound familiar? This is the default mechanism where you kind of want God, but your heart's not in it. You worship with your lips, but your heart is far, far from God. This is harmful to you. This will hurt you. This will heap guilt up in your life. And the law was never meant to finally atone for sins. Now, if someone approached the sacrificial system during the old covenant era before Christ, if they came with a heart of faith and offered a sacrifice, then there was a temporary removal of guilt in God's blessing. It was temporary judgment that was removed. And rejecting God's provision during that time would bring judgment and would betray unbelief. Nevertheless, the sacrificial system was always inadequate to make someone clean. In verse one, it's called a shadow, and that's not a compliment. A shadow of the good things. It means a pale reflection of something better. It's not a compliment. The true form and the true realities are the gospel, are the fulfillment of the law, are of Christ who came, who could make perfect. The true form, the true icon, the the true representation was Christ. Verse two gives this kind of sarcastic rhetorical question. Look at this. Otherwise, speaking of the sacrificial system, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, verse one, they're being continually offered these same sacrifices year after year during the day of atonement, during Yom Kippur to make perfect in the, in the name of people being saved. And yet they couldn't do it. The law never was able to bring someone to a perfect um, salvation, a cleansed heart from the inside out for those who are drawing near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if the day of atonement did it and everything was covered for good, wouldn't that just stop there? It would have been over, but the anticipation of every year was part of the system. It says, since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Verse two and three begins to delve into the the heart of the worshiper in the Old Testament economy. They would bring their sacrifice. They would bring it to the high priest. They would want things to be right. They would want their heart to be reconciled. They'd want to be able to leave their sin at the altar and do this. (sighs) Okay, I know it's covered. I'm not perfect, but I've been perfected. That's the heart of a believer, by the way, right? With Christ on the cross, but not this Old Testament saint. They would do everything they could do by faith. They would rest in the Lord at, at, to the degree that they could within the law, but within their conscience, they would know that things were not solved all the way. There's, there's still a consciousness of sin. And the word conscience is in that word. It's the same word. Their conscience was not cleansed through the law. It was like multiplying by zero sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice was always giving the result of zero, never increases. It was heaping shadow upon shadow, never able to get to the substance of things, to get to the conscience of sins. C.S. Lewis joking with a friend, he wrote this. I thought that was funny. He said, we were talking, he was talking to his friend about cats and dogs. He said the other day and decided that both have consciences, but the dog being an honest, humble person always has a bad one. That's dogs. But the cat is a Pharisee. 
I'm a real cat lover here. But the cat is a Pharisee, I say again, and always has a good conscience. When he sits and stares you out of countenance, he is thanking God that he is not as these dogs or these humans or even these other cats. So as people were heaping up sacrifices and, you know, multiplying by zero in their works righteousness, two effects are happening. One is a hardening of the heart or they become like a Pharisee. The other is they're beginning to feel worse and worse about their sins. Those dynamics kind of are concomitant and happen within the heart. I remember being a little boy in Sunday school. I was raised in a church where we were told to pray the sinner's prayer to be saved. So through first and second grade Sunday school, I just remember the teacher would be teaching, but I'd be praying that prayer over and over and over and over again to try to make sure this thing was free and clear, that I was good. It was like Old Testament sacrifices. Then you have the altar call where you're called to come forward and you're white knuckling the pulpit and, you know, and the songs are playing just as I am without one plea. Oh, Lamb of God, I come, I come. And I'm like, oh man, am I going to deal with my sin this time or not? You know, and then I'd go out there and pray and feel a little bit better. And then everything would sort of ricochet back into my heart and I would feel worse. It's the consciousness of sin. Verse three. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Do you see that? Every time you're coming back, every time you're coming back year in and year out, there's this reminder of your sin, a sin that's sort of half being dealt with. Um, William Barclay said it this way. I like this illustration. It says the difference between Christ's sacrifice and these repetitious forms of obedience is like a man who's sick where a bottle of medicine is prescribed. If the medicine works and cures every time he looks at the bottle, he'll say, that is what gave me back my health. If the medicine is ineffective, every time he looks at the bottle, he will be reminded that he is ill and that the recommended cure was useless. This is the temptations that vain repetition and religiosity bring, the temptations of hypocrisy and sadness. Verse 4, for it is impossible. That means powerless, literally. It's powerless, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We've learned that animals were necessary. They were a costly gift that was representing the cost of sin. When you sin, there's always going to be a cost. And sin, the wages of sin always brings death. And so animals needed to be sacrificed within this ceremonial system. But they were powerless in and of themselves. The incarnate Savior needed to come. Fully God and fully human, fully God so that he could be sacrificed with infinite worth to an infinitely holy God on our behalf. Fully human so that he could die, literally die, literally bleed for our sins. And that covering and that covering alone, that willing sacrifice, not an animal who never knew why it was going to die on that altar. Jesus, who always knew why he was going to die on that altar to die for our sins. This is prescribed by God as the offering for sins. Look at Hebrews 9, 28. Jesus offered himself. All of this is background leading into the next few verses. This is where Christ came into our world to do what religion could never do. Rituals could never do. He is the only prescription that would work. 
the practices of Old Testament sacrificing, especially when Christ came, became condemned and they trended towards being condemned because they were being done hypocritically. Look at what is quoted here, beginning in verse five. Consequently, when Christ came, when he arrived into the world, when he came to be with us, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not willed, you have not desired. That's that word, thelema, willed. You've not desired this. This was not part of your will for these sacrifices to be offered in this cold-hearted way. When did Jesus say these words, by the way? Well, there's no place in scripture that records Jesus ever quoting Psalm 40. Psalm 40 was originally written a thousand years before the time of Christ by King David. King David wrote Psalm 40. So these are words that were King David's words. So why does it say when Christ came to the world, he said this? How do we get there from here? Well, Barclay says the writer of the Hebrews has taken the words of the psalm and put them into the mouth of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, Kent Hughes helps us. He said, David had spoken in 1,000, spoken at 1,000 years before, but Christ in heaven took it and reapplied it. So as to describe, and I like this, it's describing Christ's inner thinking and dialogue with the Father when he came into the world. Well, we know the Holy Spirit inspires all scripture. So Jesus is part of that inspiration. So he put those words in David's head and they are Christ's words describing Christ because under the inspiration of this authorship, the book of Hebrews, it says Christ said it. And so it's in Christ's mouth. It's in Christ's heart. It's in Christ's thinking, but it's also in this sense, it's fulfilling the prediction of David. David himself is the foreshadowing. He's a king who represented an eternal covenant that Jesus would fulfill. David couldn't fulfill it as a, as a sinner. Psalm 40 verse 12, a few verses after this quotation, David saying, evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. But there was an eternal dynasty that was to be fulfilled where David failed, Jesus didn't. Second Samuel 7, 14 says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Whose kingdom? David's kingdom fulfilled in Christ forever. That's the fulfillment of these words. That's why these words are attributed to Christ because Christ is sovereign over what's happening and it's not his will for people to try to get to God through external religion. This is a drum that's been beaten and beaten and beaten in in and through the book of Hebrews. Religion doesn't save Externalism doesn't save. It was condemned all through scripture. First Samuel 15, 22, Samuel rebuking Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of ram. Psalm 51, 16, David repenting over his great sin. 
for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You don't want my outward obedience right now. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 1, 11. What to me is the multitude of sacrifices? Jeremiah 7, 21. He says, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. In other words, just sort of get over it. Hosea 6, 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Amos 5, 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Verse 23, they are noise. It's the noise of your songs. I will not listen. So back to verse 5. It says, when Christ came to the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you've not desired. But there was something that God did desire. A body, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, this is an interesting quotation. I don't want to just for us to like kind of devolve into a seminary class right now. But I, I do want to just say, this is a quotation from the Septuagint, meaning the Greek version of the Old Testament. That's what the inspired author of Hebrews was using. And he was using a translation that had been written some 200 years BC. And it was just the, the, it was the language of the day. It was Koine Greek. And so this author, whomever he may be, is taking a quotation from Psalm 40, from the Greek version of that called the Septuagint. And the reason he did that, I think, is a couple things. In the original Hebrew um, version, which is what Psalm 40 was written in originally, it says an ear. It, it swaps the word body for ear in the original language. But an ear you have prepared for me. And that speaks of really the deepest, most inner part of a person. So we're not just talking about a physical body. We're talking about the spiritual being of a person. When Jesus was delivered for us, instead of Old Testament sacrifices, his whole self was delivered to us. All of his being, heart, mind, and soul, everything Jesus cared about was given for you. When Jesus died on the cross, we're not supposed to think about his death just in terms of physicality in his humanity. It's the passion of Christ. It's his whole life that he gave to you in perfect obedience to the father, his sacrificial death, which was willing from the inside out. His innermost being was given for you. And all of this is foreshadowed in Psalm 40, not sacrifices, but Christ who is the sacrifice, the body that was prepared, which I think might even allude to the preparation that was done by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea when Christ was taken down from the cross. It was given for us. His arrival turned a great page. This is point two. So what it looks like not to follow the will of the Lord is externalism, external obedience, ritualism, going through the motions when your heart is far from God. That's all out of bounds. That's what is not the will of God. So if you want to be outside of the revealed will of God, be religious. But if you want to be inside and following the revealed will of God, follow Christ. Follow his word, just like Jesus modeled for us to do. Look at verse seven. 
So verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Verse 7, by contrast, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Christ is the apex example of what it looks like to follow the will of God. You say, well, but Jesus was sinless and is sinless. So his perfect submission, perfect obedience, his perfect sensitivity to the Holy Spirit was as a sinless savior. And we have to fight our own flesh. And that's true. But we fight our flesh by the same Holy Spirit that moved Jesus along the path when he was following God's will. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have something else that Jesus used as well. We have the same Bible that Jesus used. I mean, when Jesus was fighting God's arch enemy, Satan, when Jesus was doing that in the wilderness, what did he reference? Did you ever think of this? He referenced Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I mean, you have Satan himself, spiritual warfare, bombs bursting. You've got dynamics. You've got all of eternity at stake. You've got the Lord Jesus, his reputation in real dynamic time and space. Jesus, who's not eaten anything. He's not drunk anything. You've got 40 days of fasting. How is he alive? Sustained by the Holy Spirit. Stones are are in front of him. He knows he has the power to change stones to bread. And he quotes Deuteronomy to get him out. That's the reverence we should have for the word of God. That's how powerful the word of God is. I think we underestimate Jesus' intimate relationship with scripture and the relationship we should have. Satan brings Jesus to the pinnacle of a tower, says, cast yourself down. You will not dash your foot against a stone. He twists scripture. Satan's actually using scripture. He says, do not put the Lord God to the test. Deuteronomy chapter six is where Jesus goes. And then ultimately to, to bow down, the second temptation to bow down to all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, worship God alone. Do you know that when Jesus was on the cross dying, he quoted all of his little statements five times on the cross. He quoted Psalm 22. There's an intimate fellowship with the word of God that Jesus models for us that we should also have when we're trying to fight through our life circumstances. You should have a nearness to the word of God, a ready access to scripture and truth, a promise to grab onto, a scripture to quote, something coming to your mind so that you can fight the good fight of faith. Without the word of God, you are walking. It's like you're flying blind. You've got no radar on. You've got no revealed will of God. You've got no instruments to follow when the cloud covering is there of life. It's the word of God. Psalm 40 is where Jesus is shown to be understanding his whole life's mission. His whole life's mission. He came into the world, verse 5, because God didn't desire the sacrificial system. He flew in the face of that Coming to do, verse 7, the will of God. 
How did he know the will of God? Jesus knew the will of God. Look at the end of verse 7. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The scroll of the book. That's a phrase for the whole Old Testament. All of the Bible was about Jesus. Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. Jesus said, the law and the prophets, don't they testify of me? Everything was described and defined in terms of Jesus' mission. The law was a shadow, but the whole scripture, the scroll, showed that God had willed Jesus to be the sacrifice. Look at verse 8 when he said above, you've neither desired, that's the word will, you've neither willed nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to your law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Same word. He does away, that's strong language there, does away with the first in order to establish the second. How significant is that? He did away with the first in order to establish the second. He did away with the old covenant system in order for there to be one sacrifice. This is how significant it is. The old system couldn't perfect you. It couldn't make you right with God. Religion never makes you right with God. I don't care how many times you show up, how many times you do something, how many times you say something, how many times you try your best to be on your best behavior for God. None of that helps. It doesn't help you on the level of your conscience. It doesn't take away your sins. But instead, verse 10, with this new covenant, it says, and by that will, same word, the will of the new established new covenant, by that will, the will of Christ being willing to come to die on the cross for us, we have been sanctified. The word sanctified, hagiadza, it means to be set apart. The word sanctified here means to be saved. It means to be made perfect or made holy. By that will, we have been made right with God. We are set apart by the redeeming work of grace and grace alone through the sacrificial death of Christ. So why did this all happen? You're sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Why did it happen? It happened because of the decreed will of God? Well, yes, it was all part of God's plan from the beginning. Did it happen according to the revealed will of God? Yes. Isaiah 53 speaks of the lamb that was led to the slaughter. Jesus knew all along, according to the revealed will of God, that he was that lamb, that by his stripes we would be healed. It was all according to the will of God. In Isaiah 53, it actually says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. And all of that was according to God's will. It's incredible to think about. Isaiah 53, 10, listen to this verse. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
by Jesus submitting to the Father and being willing to be crushed, the will, the decretive will of the Lord for all peoples who would ever believe from all parts of the world that shall prosper in his hand. So was it according to the decreed will of God? Yes. Was it according to the revealed will of God? Yes. Jesus followed God's will so that we could be saved. And guess what? Because we're saved, you can follow God's will also like he did. Let me reiterate this. First Corinthians 2, the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit of God. We're just like, oh, we don't understand. We try to read the Bible. You can read it academically, but it doesn't really mean anything to you. But when the spirit of God creates a new heart inside you, the lights turn on and you say, no, this is the bread of life to me. This is truth. Life's falling apart. The wheels have fallen off. Don't know what to do. Don't know the next step to take. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. I can't, I can't figure it out with my own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. What does it look like to acknowledge God? Read the Bible. God, help me. What is the promise I can hang on to right now? God will not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. I read it earlier, Psalm 84. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. The unfolding of your words gives life or gives light. You, you get light from the truth. That's a flashlight that it doesn't, it's not high beams. that shows you all the road. It's, it's the low beams though, that just sort of tell you the next step to take the next prayer to pray the next conversation you may or may not have as you're discerning the will of the Lord. Romans 12, two, not conform to the world, not filling your mind with worldly thoughts, Worldly ideologies, what does the world do in a situation? No, you bring it into the conformity of the image of Christ through scripture. And then you make decisions and you live according to the revealed will of God. This is how the gospel reads. Jesus prayed all night before he chose the 12 disciples, right? The 12 apostles all night. Why don't you just say, look, I I know I'm going to choose. I'm, you know, I got that. No, he was in concert with God, the father, as he trusted by the Holy spirit, the word of God, Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, your will be done, right? It's God's will that is leading us. Proverbs sixteen nine: the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There's a story of an English village whose chapel had an arch on which was written, we preach Christ crucified. For years, godly men preached there and they presented a crucified savior as the only means of salvation. But as the generation of godly preachers passed, a generation arose that considered the cross and its message antiquated and repulsive. They began to preach salvation by Christ's example rather than by his blood. They did not see the necessity of his sacrifice. After a while, ivy crept up the side of the arch and covered the word crucified. And only we preach Christ was visible. Then the church decided that its message need not to be confined to Christ and the Bible. So preachers began to give discourses on social issues, policies, philosophy, moral rearmament, And whatever else happened to spark interest, the ivy on the arch continued to grow until it covered the third word. Then it simply read, we preach. Listen, 
The first step in knowing the will of God for your life, especially if you're not a believer, is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. That's the sacrifice that saves. That's the sacrifice that digs deep to your heart. Turn your heart over to the crucified Savior who's the living Lord who died and rose again on the third day. Give your heart to the Lord. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should have eternal life. Second Peter, he doesn't will for you to go to hell. His will is for you to know and follow him.